You're listening to the Language Leaders Podcast. Hi, I'm Alex Asher. I'm the CEO of LearnCube and the host of the Language Leaders Podcast. In this podcast, we talk about ideas and inspiration for other language school owners and language business owners. And today I'm here with Tyson Bettino, who has extraordinary experience and very unique. And I just thought he'd be a perfect person to join us on this. So thanks so much for joining us, Tyson. Glad to be on the podcast and looking forward to another chat with you, Alex. Fantastic. You've actually got so much experience and I'm going to tap into a little bit of it, Tyson. You can probably fill me out a little bit more on in terms of the number of years you've been working. But one thing I know about you is that you've already founded two language businesses, right? Uh, yes. One for English, which targeted Japanese people yeah. and Japanese language, which I target foreigners and both of them are in Japan. Amazing. And you're currently CEO of, it's called Scaling Your Business is the company name. And I guess it's all in the title, right? Which is, that's what your main business is at, at the moment, is really helping people elevate to a, another level. Ah, yes, that is correct. And people always get, it's, uh, I realized afterward that I probably couldn't show something more memorable, but it's actually Scaling Your Company. Scaling uh, Your Company, sorry. I, I could have improved on, uh, for me, on second, I, like, I was like, oh, I should have chose something that was much easier to remember. Like Japan Switch OneCoin English <laughs> is something you, you don't, never forget. So I'll say it's kind of the, the first name botch I've ever done, but I advise startups and SMBs. Yeah on how to scale their marketing, sales, yeah. and operations teams from six to eight figures. Yeah. And I can help people who are targeting Japanese customers in the Japanese language, or if you're targeting people in the English language. Uh, I can speak both uh, English and Japanese. Amazing. I think that was one of the things I thought was so interesting about you. We've spoken before, learning about the Japanese market, which is a huge market for language education, by the way, is really eye-opening. But obviously, there's a lot to unpack there. So we're going to be going through that. I'd love to tap into your, you know, you've developed a lot as a leader as well, and you're developing other leaders. So I wanted to double click on your experience around leadership. And I'm sure we'll we'll learn a lot on the journey. So thanks again for joining me. Tyson. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And I think I have a unique experience for the Japanese education market. I think that most people that you, you'll speak to, they might know one segment mm -hmm. of the language learning, but because I'm advising many businesses in the language learning space, uh, I have a pretty, I know like probably six or seven different sectors, units of the business. So yeah, uh, so I look forward to mentioning a little bit about each and just try to reduce some of the mystique about the Japanese English learning market. Sounds a lot of fun. So why don't we dive in? Really, I want to understand your journey, because I think when people understand your journey, they'll understand why this is something you know so much about. So just reflecting on your journey then, what's the most challenging thing you've faced? And how did you get through that? Probably the most challenging experience I've had was uh, when I was a manager at a company called Interact. Okay. Uh, Interact is, I think, the second biggest employer of English teachers in Japan after the national government. And the company has about 3,000 teachers. And in our branch, uh, we had uh, 600. And I had about 150 full-time teachers under my wing. And I was 28 years old. Yeah. And I was managing people in their 30s or early 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And I think we had 
a few in their 60s as well. So uh, giving feedback to people who are my mother's age. I mean, my mother was uh, 20 years older than I am, but giving feedback to essentially people who are my mom. And that was a very challenging experience. But the good thing about that experience is that it really forced me to really reflect within, like, how can I be a leader, even though yeah. this person is older than me, my natural tendency is to defer to them. But because I did have a unique insight in that because we had 600 teachers, I've seen three to 400 different teachers teach, I could almost objectively say as objectively possible what a good lesson is. Yeah. Because I've seen in so many cases and I could tell people I've seen 300 lessons and you're probably ranked 150. Sorry to burst your bubble. But and so I think that was so the challenge was but because I realized I had this unique insight that they would never have, even though they're twice my age. Yeah. that I could actually provide a lot of benefit and insight to them. And I'll say another teacher did it this way. Yeah. You should try it like that. I wanted to launch off on that before kind of rounding up your experience, because Already that tells me a lot about the scale that you've operated on, either personally and also on behalf of other businesses. So then that was working for another business, correct? When you started, yes. right? And then and you, you went on to, to found at least one business after that. And we're going to talk about the second later. But tell me some of those key milestones for your career. I think that was going to be my probably a, the second biggest challenge. Yeah. So I thought the first challenge was really <laughs> like just changing my mind from being a teacher to a manager leader of people twice my age and yeah. a lot of people. And also I had the responsibility. I was in charge of Yokohama City, which is 150 full-time teachers. It's the biggest education department in Japan. You know, I can't lose that contract. So it was it was good being pushed in such a role at such a, I would say, kind of a young age. Yeah. But for okay. the second company, that was also, we also scaled it to about 150 teachers. Still a really so. impressive amount. Yeah. So it's kind of in my element. But the challenge with that one, it was we created an English school called One Coin English. Yeah. And basically, we tried to charge one third, one fourth the price of the big English conversation schools mm -hmm. with the same quality of lesson. Yeah. And the challenge I was faced with there is how could I create a teaching style that part time university students could teach part time? Yeah. Or people studying at a Japanese language school, how could they learn to teach this style in three to six months? Because they only stay for 12 months. Yeah. Maybe they'll go back to their home country. The time in Japan for their study abroad is only one year. So, you know, we can't spend one year training people. In my case, like where I came from, the corporate background is like, yeah, we love our three-year teachers. Yeah. But then my co-founder was like, this is the amount we're going to pay hourly. It's less than the average rate. Right. And so when I thought that, I was like, oh, if we're going to pay people less than average, I have to reduce prep time. Yeah. And I have to make this as painless as possible for them. So I think just being forced into that corner. Yeah. Like, so when you have those limitations, you're like, okay, how are we going to go, go with this? That's really interesting. And it shows kind of some of the dynamics already when you're running a language school based around humans. It's a weird time that we live in that we need to explain that we're talking about human teachers, not AI teachers, but that's yeah, how it yeah. is. So you're right though, you're working with teachers. Churn is a huge thing. And I can imagine why that would be so important to you because if you're constantly training new teachers, as you say, onboarding is critical, but also making sure they stay at least their tenure is critical. Otherwise, it massively increases your other kind of recruitment costs and so forth. 
there's a lot there, really a lot to unpack. So that was your first business and that was OneCoin English. Then you that is correct. finished that. Did that end up, did you end up selling to a different business or what was that experience like? So in our case, I uh, was OneCoin English. We, even though we were not funded through like, you know, traditional startup venture capital, we did grow at a really rapid rate where uh, we were doubling in employees, like, you know, 50 to 30. Then the next year, like 50 or 60, then I think like 100, 150, 200. Yeah. yeah. So every year is really an, um, so that was the other challenge I was going to say. And because we grew at such a rapid rate, I had to basically reinvent who I was every three to six months because yeah. all the tactics, methods, management styles, hacks that got me to this stage it didn't work for like, it might work until 50 people, but it definitely isn't going to work for a hundred. Yeah. So I've had to, and that involved getting a mentor, paying people or paying for lunch for people who have much more money than I do, just to have the opportunity to talk to them, just studying a lot about leadership management. And so I just had to really just study, study, study and action, 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 reflect, reflect, reflect. And then that and led to after, your, yeah, then you, that led Switch, to Japan yes. Switch, right? Which is, it's part of the same company. Uh-huh. I won't go into too much details, but basically we had a the Japanese COO. I was HR director mm-hmm. and we had the Japanese system. We had the foreign system. It was silly doing things, both two different systems. And yeah. I was like, yeah, I'm cool with letting you guys do it. And also at that point, like I was like, we're like about, I think, 100, 150 teachers. I'm like, I've already done this. It's not that challenging for me. So they're like, oh, we were thinking about starting a new business. Like my friend mentioned to me, they wanted to partner up to create this. Japanese language school. And I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting because I would love to learn how to do marketing. And my co-founder is like, he had taken three companies, two or three companies to seven figures already. Okay. So I got to join like, but he said, and he's pretty well known in for the small business in Japan, but he said, you'll be suited, really suited for marketing. So I was like, okay, I'll give it a try. And plus I need to learn yeah. I'm going to help scale the company national. Like uh, I need to understand, a, let's say, a financial statement. Yeah. And I have no interest in it right now. But if I was running the business, uh, I, I definitely will become. But Amazing. we grew it really quickly. Uh, I grew yeah. it to about 200 students. I think we got about, yeah. because our students were tourists, they only stay for like two to three months. But got it. I think I was able to get about 400 students yeah. purely through Facebook ads. Yeah, fantastic. And so that was kind of cool. But uh, yeah, I think right now we have about five or 600 students at two locations and online learning Japanese. And that was kind of a unique experience. But because of a partnership, we could only target beginners to low intermediate, Mm -hmm. no business, no reading, writing, just speaking lessons during the daytime when no one can study. But I was still able to bring speak back to the other store where I'm always shoved in these unique corners and I have to find a unique way to just survive. But that's uh, I, I think that's a really good launching pad into understanding the ecosystem around language teaching and language education in Japan. Mm. Do you want to just tell me a little bit more about the main ways that language education is delivered and who the major players are? So if somebody's listening in, they don't know much about it, help us set the scene. You have your Ekaiwa, which is English conversation schools. Mm-hmm. They're usually separated into those that focus on adults, those that focus on kids, and some that focus on both. Most foreigners, if you hear that they have an English school in Japan, it's most likely they're a kid's school. Many of the schools that focus on adults have actually, they've lost a lot of business due to COVID. And the ones that have survived 
and even grown a little bit are the ones in the kids section. Uh, but it pretty much mostly everyone in the adult sector got wiped out. And even though my company is adults only, we were harmed the least. And we only lost one school wow. out of 10. Where or maybe we lost our 11th score, but all our competitors closed like four, some closed 20. And the next one is you have the Gakudo and afternoon schools. So these are more of the Gakudo is more of the Japanese. It's more of a, it's a technical term, but you can just call it afternoon school. But basically it is a place where children study after elementary school. To give a background for this one, let's say previously there's a lot of women who stayed at home in Japan. And so the children would finish school around 2 or 3 p.m., they would come home and then just the mom would take care of them. But nowadays, there's a lot of mothers who have re-entered the workforce. And so they call it like the first greater wall. And so the afternoon school is it's actually one of the few growing markets in Japan recently because parents want to send their kids somewhere after school. The public schools are completely booked. And if they can learn English, even better. So this is relatively new and it's probably the fastest growing market in Japan, I think, as 2023. Next, you have the Jukus, which is the cram schools. They typically would prepare a student to enter a private junior high school because you have entrance exams. So it's, it's less about, you know, like, let's say, can you afford it? It's more like, do you actually have the scores? Got it. It's different than the West in that aspect. There's less legacy. And they prepared you for university entrance exams. And because the Japanese population is shrinking, which everybody is probably aware of by now, their market size is shrinking. So they've also entered the English market in that uh, they're offering English lessons. And one cheeky tactic they're doing is they're offering usually for free. Like they say, like, hey, you can take English lessons in addition to your other ones at our school. Oh, wow. Interesting. And they're also targeting younger ages now. Before, I think it was like probably around fourth grade, fifth grade, right before you go to junior high school. But now they're trying to get them in third. Or in. There's a big battle right now between the English conversation school owners who focus on kids, which a lot of them are foreigners. A lot of them are foreigners, probably more than 400, probably even more than 600. And then you have the Jukus now who are encroaching on their turf. And so I'm helping a lot of my clients battle and uh, kind of distinguish themselves versus the Jukus who are trying to offer free and the Jukus are also trying to copy. So there right now, it's kind of basically there wasn't much evolution, but I'm helping my clients evolve in marketing operations and sales offering because of this increase, increased competition. The other formats is the online ones and the big players there is DMM, Rare Job, and QQ, all through our publicly traded companies. I don't know their revenue, but I think they're making more than 100 million a year. And so they absorbed a lot of the adult market. And oh, one thing I didn't mention about the Kyle adults, a lot of school tried to switch to a hybrid where you could study in person online, but it was really hard to compete with online, really cheap lessons, like where they would basically charge like $3, like, you know, $2.50, $3 for a 30 minute lesson, 25 minute lesson. They're like crazy cheap. Yeah, crazy even cheap. For, even for Japan, right? That is not, that's a low number, right? Yeah, it's ridiculously cheap. And also they have, uh, some of them have deals with big publishers. So, you know, the textbooks that you're using in your school, a student can just pay that cheap price. They pay like maybe $20, $30 a month, unlimited lessons. They don't need to buy a textbook. I'm not sure if I can say the publisher's name, but there's famous British or English universities that publish things. And uh, there's probably several that you know of, but 
I think the person just chooses what book they want. They can study that lesson and they don't need to buy the book. Yeah, it's impressive, isn't it? Sort of, it's definitely a different dynamic to other parts of the world. So a unique site that started more, I think, in like 2020, uh, the main company is called Torais, but they do the unlimited lessons format where you can speak with native speakers who understand teaching Japanese learners. And I think you pay about, I guess the current exchange rate may be uh, it's 1 million yen a year. I think I believe I might begin that wrong, but uh, six thousand dollars a year maybe, and you get unlimited lessons. And but the unique thing is they have the coach, and that's actually another growing market. It's having usually a Japanese person who has a TOEIC or a TOEFL or not really IELTS. To be honest, not really IELTS, but a more of the Japan-centered test, and they have a very very high score, and they coach you on how to learn the English language. And uh, the coach model is a growing market, and the reason for that is the gym coach, the private gym coach method. There was a huge boom in Japan and they just kind of jumped on it. And one kind of unique sales point they have is they can say, oh, we can raise your point score by 150 points on this test if you go through our program. And uh, if you go through it and you would say our program dutifully and you don't pass, you get a full refund of $2,000. So they charge a lot and they make big promises, guaranteed outcomes. Bootcamp type, uh, they call that more of the Spart Sparta. That type is one of my acquaintances. He runs one of the most successful ones, but that one, it's you probably pay about, yeah, probably $2,000, $3,000. And you get like two to three months unlimited study, the coaching, but it's more short term. There's one is the yearly type. And this one is more like the three months type. So someone quits their job, they want to improve their English. They go there for three months. University student, they're going to go travel abroad for three months, or sorry, for like a year, they'll go to the intensive. Uh, and now they have unlimited lessons plus the coaching. And that's the boot camp style. Uh, you might have like a weekly boot camp, but usually I would consider the boot camp more like a three month thing. And it's usually for people who maybe they are going to study abroad or they don't have the money to study abroad or for some reason they want to still stay in Japan, but kind of get the in Japan study abroad experience. You would typically go to a boot camp and then uh, you typically have your study abroad where they study abroad for either one week, if it's a working person, one month. You're a working person with a kind, with a kind company. Uh, let's say six, you know, three months to twelve months. If you're in between jobs, and there's companies that uh, they pretty much they can manage everything for you, and That's some right. they prepare you in advance. And so with our company, a one coin English, we actually have a study abroad department as well, since we have so many students. It makes sense that we just have that side business as well, which. I think it's probably going to turn to a skill where it's pretty much its own business. I could see it definitely being a seven-figure business in the future on its own. And then the last one is dispatch companies to businesses or schools. So that's what where I worked at, where we had we were the employer of thousands of teachers, and we sent them to Japanese schools, and they paid us a management fee. That is the very sorry. The, and that's, that's a, there's a lot there. And also we didn't touch on the ninth, which is the B2B corporate language, right? So uh, yes, so that one is actually decreasing. So like, uh, this one is a really hard one to start if you're considering, but it's you'll be training Japanese business people on skills like presentation, uh, general English, you're preparing someone to, you know, uh, travel abroad. Uh, I think the high exchange rate or first it was COVID where people weren't being sent overseas. And also with the combination of uh, Zoom, 
yeah. and with amazing solutions like LearnCube, <laughs> where, which has expanded the model of online learners. But because of uh, COVID, people sort of switching to Zoom and being pretty happy or Zoom, LearnCube. Yeah, yeah. And being pretty happy with online lessons. And the last one is because of the exchange rate, they're less likely to send people abroad. And that has impacted the amount of what people who had corporate clients or companies that sent people to corporate. I talked to a lot of people and many people have lost uh, corporate clients. And usually the ones that were saved, it's usually uh, you had a friend in corporate. You had a really great relationship with them. They're happy with you. And your friend hasn't been switched to a different department. Oh, But okay. once your ally gets switched to a different department, you might lose that contract. And, which, and in Japan, it's very common for people to be switched between departments. Got it. And with the corporate language business, that's certainly an area that you know, LearnCube we're exposed to a lot, at least in, in areas that I probably understand a little bit better around Europe and the Americas. There's been a real switch to online teaching in particular, which wasn't present before COVID. Those that are still doing corporate language training, is that still, is that quite online or is actually so much work gone back to the office that actually we're still doing a lot more in-person language training? Uh, I'll say in-person was coming back. One of the big issues is people were banned from going to the corporations yes. in Japan. Yeah. And so a lot of people lost their contracts there. And But what they've seen is although they've lost it, it hasn't come back. So they've just it. stopped it completely. Yeah. So I think it's a mixture of where maybe they're not, uh, let's say, valuing as much because the opportunities to send people overseas is decreasing. And I think the other one is they, they, some of them might have found other solutions. Out of curiosity, what's the cultural value that Japanese companies put on their employers being able to speak fluent English, whether or not they deal directly with, we won't just call it English customers because they could be from anywhere in the world being the, the mm -hmm. lingua franca, but do you have any insights into that? Yeah, I'd say for smaller companies, it'll typically be the, how it usually goes is they have an employee join and one of them just so happens to speak English. So they're like, oh, why don't we take a little bit more foreign business? Mm. So that's how, that's more of the accountants. I, there's a couple other, like, I just can't, or like, uh, hotels, accountants, and that's how those ones typically happen. But in the corporate ones, like the bigger companies, it's usually they're exporting. So big one is, uh, let's say, car parts manufacturers. <laughs> and they have salespeople who have to go overseas. They have to uh, check on the plants, yep. make sure uh, quality control. So I, I don't think I answered. Could you repeat your I question think, again? I think Sorry. you did, which is it's really still, it seems, I was curious about whether English provided a level of career progression that you might see in other countries. Uh -huh. Whereas your answer indicated that it was more like if you have a role that's associated with exporting, that's when we might value English rather than it by its very nature being uh, intrinsically yeah, valuable. Say, as opposed to intrinsic value, I'd say probably not so much. There are some startups. So I mean, one thing that's changing in the startup world in Japan is that they call it, uh, I think it might be more of a domestic term, but they call it like born local or like born global. Yeah. Or I, I forget the, the terminology, but yeah. basically one point is it's how do we train more Japanese entrepreneurs yeah. to expand outside of Japan? Because if I'm an investor, the Japanese market is a lot of potential, but as a VC who wants to make much, much more money, it's yeah. uh, the more Japanese companies that can go overseas, the more 
return on investment we can receive. So that's kind of a big debate in the startup world. How do we create more Japanese startups who can go overseas? So in that yeah. case, it's typically just, in most cases, it's the most natural cases. The natural cases is the CEO is either very interested in being a global company. So that's just a natural transition. But what's ha also happening now is a company would maybe, uh, uh, maybe let's say, let's say they make eight figures mm -hmm. and then the venture capital say that's not enough. And you gotta keep growing the business, yeah. and they dr grudgingly. Interesting. So, so they, they say it's born global. Sometimes I might say it's like forced global. So it's kind of the internal pressures. And me personally, I think although the Japanese population is shrinking, yeah, I don't think the English market will shrink. No. Why and is the that? Reason, the reason for that is for Japanese companies to maintain their same levels of revenue, they have no choice but to sell overseas. True. So they can either expand domestically, acquire other companies, expand domestically. But so they're forced in a situation where they will have to export more, sell more services overseas. And the only way to do that is to learn English. So I think that's going to offset the loss in the population. So that's I'm interesting. Still... Well, I'm going to I'm going to double click on that question. What else do you think that people may not know? Or what insights do you think about the Japanese market in particular sort of scream out at you as actually, hey, this is something you should really be aware of that wouldn't be nat you know, that natural to somebody not from or living within the Japanese uh, business realm? Yeah, in my case, I often do talk about like personal growth. Let's say I, I did achieve the highest level of Japanese much, much faster than your average person. Or I'll say yeah. most foreigners never get to that level. And the speed at which I got to that level is very fast. And a lot of people, they know Japan for having very high quality, like the sushi chefs, mm -hmm. the way they prepare the food, the pottery. And so I think foreigners, one mistake they mention is that they think that a lot of Japanese people apply that same level of mastery and interest towards learning the English language. A lot of times I have people come, they come to Japan, they have all this really high tech, like we have the most advanced space repetition system ever. You're going to learn it. it faster than everyone. Else. And it's, it's like, that's cool, but that's, it might be like 10,000 people, maybe a thousand. So it's, uh, so, so I think it's still... foreigners coming with overly optimized solutions where in Japan, the language learning market is much more simple. The thing that might surprise some people is that, you know, at least in my school, it's, it's just adults. They finish their job. They're just looking for like, instead of going to Starbucks and sitting <laughs> with a 500 yen coffee by yourself, you can come take a 500 or let's say it's, it's actually a 600 yen lesson with other people. What will you choose? Coffee by yourself or lower quality coffee, but higher quality company. Interesting. Again, you're kind of addressing what are people learning for? And it's not always because I want to be fluent. You've almost indicated there it could be a social dynamic. That could be the main uh, indicator for whether or not. So, that yeah, would... that's a really big market. And yeah, oftentimes you'll find students where their goal is just to maintain their level. Yeah. Like, how can I maintain their level without ad adding an additional stress point in my life? You also indicated it can be very price competitive within Japan as well. I think somebody that doesn't know Japan very well, I might be like, oh, okay pretty wealthy or at least very progressed economy. Surely it's the same prices as in Europe and other kind of higher income OECD countries. Not necessarily so. You know, you've mentioned there that there was some very low cost options for learning English, even with a with a teacher within Japan. That seems to be another example of where it might be quite different, what's normalized. Yeah, because I think in the span of like now I think it's like 13, 10 
13 years maybe, but the tax rate, I mean, you have that in Europe, which is mm -hmm. ridiculously expensive, but in Japan, it was 4%. Right. And just the increase to 10%, you know, it's not, not a 6% increase. It's a people are paying, it went from four to 10. That's the supplier pays that. Then the next person pays that additional 6%. So, you know, there's three to four layers where you get this 6%, 6%, 6%, 6%. And I think people misunderstand that it's like, oh, it's just a 6% increase. It's like, no, it's probably a 15 to 20% increase and you just don't know it. When did that happen? Was that a more recent VAT increase? The last one was uh, 2013. And that increase from 4 to 10% was the best thing that could ever happen to my company. I hated it from a personal standpoint. Yeah. But from a business standpoint, it helped me beat our competitors. Right. Because people became price sensitive. And then they were because looking Because everything got more expensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Moving away from the business dynamics then, what are some of the challenges or the other insights around operating a business and particularly a language business within Japan. Is there anything that jumps out at you as being something that people don't know? Maybe it's about the timetables, the way people are used to taking particular classes or trying to learn language. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the challenge of operating a language school in Japan is because of the amount of money students are used to paying, you're not going to get the money to hire someone who's like a 20-year teacher. And if you're a 20-year teacher, and you're best off to create your own school, actually, because that's the only way you're going to make uh, the wages that you would like to earn. Got it. Particularly, it goes I back think... to that price competitiveness, right? Like that, the only way to be price competitive is to start squeezing costs as well. And, so, and that impacts uh, the uh, the teacher teacher prices, right? So you have to pay for rent, the Japanese staff to manage it. But if you're a foreigner who could speak daily conversational Japanese and Japanese people like you. You just rent out a room, teach lessons, gradually grow it. Maybe you have 150 students, 100 to 150 students yourself. You can make up almost seven figures. Or, so, sorry, not seven figures. Uh, sorry, six, six figures annually. Yeah, yeah. And so then going back then, what would be some of the other operating challenges within working within Japan? Yeah, so I'll say that I'll say one, it's if you're very kind of like uh, picky about the lesson quality that you want to have. And based on the amount you charge, you might find it really hard to find teachers. And by the time you find a teacher, and it takes them three years to learn your very complicated teaching style to, let's say, 10 different types of classes. And they have, let's say, uh, maybe they're like, oh, my career, I'm trying to think about my career now. Yeah, I think I'll have to go back home. Or actually, I kind of moved to the city now. Yeah, so just teacher teacher churn in terms of that can make yeah. it really difficult to scale a. And does this go back maybe to your point before around really a simple approach to language learning versus a more what could be a higher quality? Maybe it's even more effective, but it's not as totally or, simple. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think because I do find a lot of people say like you know my teaching style is the best, and it's like cool, like based on what criteria. So I think one method is they could make it or to make it scalable, it has to be simpler. And also, I think the teaching style I came up with often is just talking to Japanese students, like, what do you want to see in the lesson? And just cutting out all the unnecessary elements to make it scalable. Is, second... it, is it typically one? I mean, also, you kind of mentioned with some of the larger players within Japan offering very affordable one-to-one -one classes. Is it mainly one-to-one -one classes that Japanese students are looking for or are group classes just as both, both popular? Says, uh, yep, they're yep. both pretty popular. Yeah, interesting. And, and I think the challenge with for a language school is 
I think this will probably jump into your next question, but it's having managers, having a middle layer. I think almost everyone gets stuck on that middle layer. Like you have the owner, you, you have your teacher and the middle layer where you have a really good teacher, but they're not a manager. They're not a leader, but also you as a school owner, language school owner, you might not actually be a leader. And so that's one of the areas I come in for a lot of businesses where maybe they have 10 teachers. And they need a teacher manager in between to help, you know, manage, but the school owner is not senior level. And therefore, how can you teach a middle level person if you're not senior level yourself? And so that's one of the gaps I often fill in is helping coach the owner to become more. What I mean by senior level is you can make like a one to two year business plan and carry it out. If you can't do that, you're probably not a senior level and a somewhat ambitious plan. And so if you can't do that, how can you bring a teacher from entry level to middle manager? So I kind of help with that gap. And just I think it just takes the, the communication skills needed to become senior level. If you're not taught it, it's often you don't you won't learn it naturally. It has to be taught or mentored. I'm going to check into that one. In terms of you do a lot of coaching and help with leadership through your scaling my company business, I'm curious, what would be the main reason that you find people get stuck? Either they're a foreign company that's coming to Japan, they get stuck, or it's a business within Japan. It's got an established base, but just can't seem to break through. Any thoughts sure. on that? Yeah, I'll dive into both because they both have usually uh, different challenges. But the one that's domestic, usually it's where they try to scale, like where they try to break into the millions, like a million in revenue. And usually the issue is the owner provides really good quality lessons, but it hasn't translated to the lower level. And that really frustrates the owner. And the owner tries to get involved either in teaching or like training. And I think the other one is also the, the manager is uh, basically they're a head teacher, but they're not a manager who can deal with HR. So one thing I try to do is uh, with the owners, I know you don't like HR, but you have to do it right now. Let your teacher become a head teacher first before they become a manager. Then if they can become a head teacher, we can help that transition. But I push some of my owners into becoming an HR manager, even though they want to get out of it. So that's one technique. The other technique I help, one other one is usually just communication issues where the owner's like, I want to do this. I want to do that. I heard some other owners say that, so I want to do this too. And I just have to tell some of the clients is like, you know, I wouldn't want to work for you because I don't trust you. If you don't give us the time to fully execute on something, the thing that I'm going to execute looks half-assed. And then you're going to criticize what, what I worked on and say, like, what's this? This isn't fully. It's like, yeah, I didn't have time to do it because I'll do that other pipe dream that you wanted me to do. And so what I'll do is I'll basically half-ass everything you say until I am certain that you're probably going to want this thing. And I'll try to do that thing nice. But then if you change your mind, you're going to get angry at me because I didn't do that other thing so nicely. Fascinating. Yeah. So you've got that incentive, disincentive problem happening there. And then so, on the, the second scenario where you see, and actually you had, sometimes you maybe have even got more experience when you were working for this other very large company. What is the other big issue that people notice when they've, okay, they've got the team, the leadership team, the business running, but they're going, it sounds like the headcount can get really quite challenging. Is that the main thing that sort of slows down these businesses at the, the larger end of the spectrum? Gotcha. So yeah, so I'll say more even earlier, and it's usually communication is the biggest issue. 
because the owners haven't been taught to do business communication. They haven't taught to actually lead or they haven't taught. And uh, one of the points I was going to say today, the difference between being a founder versus a CEO. And so a lot of reasons they can't scale to a million is because they're a founder. They're not a CEO. So I think that's that's a whole big, that's a deep topic. But yeah, to get past 3 million, you definitely have to be a CEO. Uh, you might get lucky in some cases, but and uh, but in the larger, the corporate area, I would say actually pretty much, I think everyone has a lot of infighting. There's yeah. a lot of factions. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the challenge is, I've only coached maybe a few people on this, but it's how do you deal with corporate politics? Yeah. And that's also, you need someone to kind of guide you. Like, how do you get these different departments to work together with you to create something? as opposed to fighting with each other. And I, in my previous company, big corporation, headquarters wanted us to do things. and But we didn't want to do it headquarters way. But we were the biggest. We were essentially 15%, 20% of the company, just in one one out of like the, the 10 branches or something. And so we had a lot of power, but there's a lot of that infighting there. And it, it resulted in a lot of wasted resources in that headquarters would create something mm -hmm. and we would create something. And so we would double create things and I would say, so I think that resulted in a very high HR expense, but yeah, so I think in that case, but let's say, which I, I've never seen, uh, I've, I haven't been too impressed, to be honest, with the leadership skills uh, of even the corporate, uh, yeah. let's say, managers. For a lot of companies in Japan in the English space, the marketing is actually pretty good. Yeah. It's just the operations can't keep up with marketing. That's always the biggest issue, actually. What? starts grinding down the operations team i think it's one it's like just having someone who's a real coo yeah and one is a coo who can uh i'll say aid the ceo but also if the ceo has maturity issues helping the ceo actually uh, understand what their role and putting the ceo into their ideal role yeah. and not uh, getting in the way and more like for me at least what i think a ceo should be doing is being on tv every was it get on just get on the freaking tv yeah if i want to get a japanese manager yeah. post a facebook post and we we just we find them there yeah if you can't do that then you're not doing your job as ceo you're just getting in the way so the ceo's job is basically to provide a rocket boost was it you go on tv you know marketing just flies like you just print money was the operations can handle it well, it already tells me a little bit about the Japanese market as well. Like even just mentioning TV kind of indicates the kind of mass media that you're trying to trying to hit and use. Uh, we, uh, we've been on national TV once, like a 10 million or like I think 8 million viewership program. Like I can't give the numbers, but it was like, it's like bling, bling, go like, oh my God, it's, it was beautiful. Wow. Servers crash. <laughs> we had a business server crashed. I think recently they were on national TV again. I don't think it's as but still in the millions, but it's, yeah, yeah, it's huge being it on does, Japanese TV. It, it does show you again, I think this maybe can round that out if you have a, a business outside of Japan and looking into it, you can see that there are different promotional channels, you can see that there are different price points, and some of these things might jar with your existing operations and existing marketing efforts. So just trying to kind of shoehorn uh, uh, you know, what's working for your domestic market would be, sounds like it'd be very challenging to do successfully into Japan. 
Yeah, it's just kind of a lot of things you learn. Like today, I was actually coaching one of my clients. Like yeah. a news program wanted to interview him for like a yeah. whole day, and they're yeah. gonna do a feature, and I had to train him. Like you need to use this exact word in Japanese. Like let's yeah. say they call it like your your, your dream jobs. Okay. Like, you have to say this word. Yeah, that's and the. Like, <laughs> and just training him like what to say in Japanese, and just telling him like, or I, I don't mind sharing the audience, but one was they're gonna ask you why you came to Japan, and you have to say something that Japanese people are proud about. It's yeah. not what don't don't say anime because only very a, a few niche market, but say like you love Japanese food so much that you had to come back and stay, or yeah, you know Japanese people treated you so well. So you always have to say something Japanese people. Uh, and I was just coaching him other elements, um, what to say <laughs> as well, like like how to get called back as a foreigner. I uh, just based on my experience of we've been on TV so many times, and I've worked with, I've talked with the director, and like what is the content we should go with. And uh, sorry for the last question is how to enter the Japanese market. This one is the harder one because it's how I think of Japan is it's going to take you one to two years to break in. Mm -hmm. Probably two. It'll probably take you two years to break in, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But once you break in, it's going to take your competitors two years to break in. That's right. Two to three years to break in. So it's it is a major. If you're looking for quick wins, probably go to Viet Vietnam is faster. Maybe Thailand, maybe Australia. For your APAC region. But uh -huh. I'll say if you're pressed for cash, maybe yeah. focus more on, you know, maybe Thailand is a growing yeah. market or Australia, yeah. which I've uh, I've helped some of my clients uh, do that, where yeah. they hired me to bring the Japanese market, but like uh, based on your timelines, you should actually do Vietnam. That's right. And they generated revenue. And I just helped them, let's say, with the sales elements to doing other uh, in English to countries. But if you're if you're kind of happy with that and then you're ready for Japan. So I think let's say is before even considering Japan, just understand that two point. If you're looking for quick wins, go to Southeast Asia. Yeah. And if you, if uh, it does sound like it's both a barrier and a barrier for you, but also a barrier for competitors exactly. to get into Japan. I think that's a really good place to finish up. Um, I'm just wanted to make sure that people knew where to find more about you. Is your business is called Scaling Your Company? It's scalingyourcompany.com. And that is correct. Tell me a little bit more about Tyson. You definitely help advise from startups to SMBs in particular. That's your sweet spot of how to scale and grow within the Japanese market. Is there anything else that you'd like our audience to to know about before we finish today? Yeah, although uh, I, I am American, my, my native language is English. Okay. And I've created a Japanese school targeting for what's the English speakers. And I've managed hundreds of English speakers. Also, I've managed lots of Japanese. But even if you're not thinking of the Japanese market, particularly, I also know a lot about B2B sales, yeah. marketing, and also scaling an organization. So I would say, I would say like my unique point is that I'm essentially what your ideal COO would be in that I've run a marketing department. I run my do my own sales now. So I've done B2B sales in my previous company. And uh, I've also worked in the work uh, business processing department of my company, where I manage a team of four people whose sole job is to create business processes Yeah, for the 10 departments. I'm one of those rare people who actually matches the COO role, where yeah. I can run all aspects of the company and I can also create business simulations. So I would say that's kind of my unique point is that uh, if you go to a marketing agency, yeah. they're going to sell you marketing. Yeah. 
you goes to a sales developer, they're going to sell you sales. But my unique point is I can tell you if it's either a product issue, marketing, sales, or operations, or a combination of two and tell Amazing. you which one you should focus on first. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think you you have so much experience on so many different levels there. I definitely agree with you. From even talking with you, there's so many ideas that you can bring to people in any market. So Tyson, from me, massive thank you. I really appreciate it. And for those listening in, please make sure you subscribe to the Language Leaders Podcast. We've got more ideas, insights, and inspiration for you. So thank you very much and see you soon. Bye.